worship you. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues, or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for them so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today, as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy! That's what you are. Lazy! That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Chapter 5 uh, is one of those, those passages. Here's kind of how we, how we do things, and I've explained this before, but we kind, of, we kind of preach them as we get them, typically. Meaning we decide ahead of time, we look into, we divide up the book, and we go, this is where we're going to preach them. And so, uh, typically if we have one of these combined services, we'll sometimes have a special message, and it'll be uh, uh, more of a rah-rah message, uh, uh, that, that kind of thing. We, we do do that often, but this time we're not even really thinking about just, oh, it's a combined service. We'll just continue in our series in Exodus. And then uh, as I began to do my study, I looked at Exodus 5 and said, oh, uh, 
Um, okay, God, thank you for this. What's well, with chapter 5? And I'll be honest with you, I feel like sometimes that, uh, that God has called me to be, uh, be like the prophet Jeremiah or the weeping prophet, the prophet who's always speaking lamentations. I just sometimes come across passages and I go, oh God, this is, this is what you want me to preach in a, in a combined service? That, that's what you have for me? I wonder if Jeremiah ever said, God, I appreciate that you're sending me to the people. I appreciate that, and I appreciate, you know, cool nickname. They call me the weeping prophet and stuff, but could I get, could I get something just a little bit more upbeat for this week, God? And so that was my approach to this, this passage when I encountered it uh, early in the week. And so Monday and, um, uh, Monday and Tuesday, I, I just kept saying to, to Block, I was like, man, I, I don't, like, like it's there, and it's in the Bible, and I get that, but like, what, how do you, what am I going to do with that? What am I doing that? I just, you know, and so uh, in, in my humanity, a little bit complaining about the passage which God had put, could, had put before me. And uh, that all made a lot, of, a lot of sense, my complaints, until Wednesday. And on Wednesday, a gunman went into a, into a public school and killed 17 people. And upon that, all of a sudden, when I reread chapter 5, and I started to think about the context. All of a sudden, the reason why chapter 5, and we'll discuss it, appears in, in Scripture, and the reason why it's there, and what it has to say to us, and what it can say to us, actually corresponds very well to what, God, what has happened in, in our world this week. And I am glad that God has it for us, because the message is, is important. I don't think that it will be as... Um, as rah-rah as some stuff that we do, but I do understand exactly, it brought into clear relief uh, who exactly I was to question God and why he would, he would do uh, a chapter like this, because uh, when, when you face in any time uh, something like what happened in our country, that should be and is emotionally devastating to us. And if you don't find it emotionally uh, devastating, uh, that, that's probably even a bigger problem. I'll be honest, uh, it happened on, on Valentine's Day. We went out for Valentine's night with friends, and I had a very, very, very hard time getting out of a depressive funk. The idea that, and I, I think this is the, the reason having high school children, children that I love, uh, the, the concept of someone coming into their space and coming at them and ending their, their life just essentially for what seems like, like sport was, was, was devastating. So here's, here's what I'm going, going to say to you. Uh, we probably will not come back largely to that, but I, I use that introductorily to say it to you, is that it occurs to me that we live in, in a place, in, in, in a world that is affected greatly by pain, affected greatly by sorrow, and affected greatly by, by suffering. That's what uh, the school shooting uh, in Florida, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a large-scale media circus reminder that we live in a world racked with suffering and, and, and pain. And we can point to, to example after example after example after example of that happening in other places in our news and in our life. And, and so it's not just what happens in the news that might be happening in your life. And so God uh, saw fit through Moses 
to give us chapter 5 of Exodus, uh, I would note that the, the chapter divisions are not, are not canonical. In other words, the, they were put there after, after the fact. But it's given us a literary structure as best that they can understand. They give us the literary structure of, of chapter 5. And so we'll deal with it. I'll also note just one more note. We're going to deal with this in a way that's slightly different than what we typically do at Crosswinds. Typically, uh, if we're speaking, we'll be in Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to stick our head in Exodus chapter 5 and just sort of stay there. This morning, we're going to, we're going to hit up Exodus 5, and we're going to jump forward through some other scriptures. Uh, we typically like to stay in one, one chapter or one literary piece uh, to help you uh, see how God said it to the original hearers to help you understand how you might do do devotions, uh, do those those sorts of things. And so we don't a lot of times, but this morning I think to help us understand the narrative arc of what what God was saying, we'll we'll begin in Exodus chapter five, but we'll we'll move through some some other scriptures. So then, in Exodus five. We begin with later Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh. The later suggest that something happened before, right? So uh, what happened before is what happens at the end of Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, right around verse 29, we read this. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron repeated everything uh, the Lord had said uh, to Moses and performed these signs for the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshipped. So, Exodus chapter 5 begins with a later. The, 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 the question then is later than what? Well, it was later than the people, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel falling on their faces and worshiping the Lord God. They're like, this is God. We've seen his signs and his wonders. Look at him. The, they, they assemble together. They come together as a people, and the people kneel low, and they worship God. Chapter 5. Later, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. And they say to Pharaoh, let my people go. So later, Moses and Aaron go in to Pharaoh. They say to Pharaoh, let my people go. He's like, whose people? Uh, (coughs) uh, Whose people? And they say, it's the Lord's people. Remember, we talked about this, uh, I think, three weeks back now when we see the word Lord. Unfortunately, for some reason, when it gets onto our screen, it does not retain the all caps but you can just assume that if you encounter the word Lord in, in Exodus especially and in these passages, that would be an all-caps representation of the word Lord. We talked about that, that that is, that is, a, that is a symbol title applied to the name of, of, of God, that God is Yahweh. And so God has a name. What happens is Moses and Aaron go in. They say, greetings, we're Moses uh, I'm Moses, this is Aaron, we are representatives of Yahweh, and Yahweh says to let his people go. Pharaoh is unimpressed. Pharaoh replies, he says, who is Yahweh? Who's he that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So Moses and Aaron show up on the scene and says, hi, we are representatives of Yahweh, let his people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know the dude, I ain't meant the dude, and I'll do what I want to do. This causes problems. They answer, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to to Yahweh, our, our God. 
uh, or else that he, uh, he or else he might strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect your work? Get to your labor, Pharaoh said. Look, the people of your land are so numerous and you would stop them from working? Moses and Aaron show up, go, hey, Yahweh says let his people go. Pharaoh says, that's interesting. I don't know the dude. They're my slaves and they'll do what I say. Tell them to get back to work. And this begins an a, 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 a even darker period for, for the children of, of, of Israel. They, they have, at the end of verse 4, or at the end of chapter 4, they're worshiping God, uh, they are worshiping God, and they are all kneeling low. At the beginning of chapter 5, they are expecting then that Moses and Aaron will go into Pharaoh. They'll say, because they've seen the signs that God has performed, that, that they will say to Pharaoh, let Yahweh's people go. And Pharaoh will go, okay, I'll let Yahweh's people go. That's not what happens. Further, he goes, why are you causing them to neglect their work? They're supposed to be building me bricks. He sends out the message to his people. He commands the overseers of the people, as well as the foremen, don't give, don't give them supplies for their bricks. They have too much time to devise schemes, too much time to dream about being free, too much time to think about doing something else. Take away, take away the materials and make them collect the materials. They do that. The, the, the Israelites try and make their bricks. They try and do their work, but they can't get it done. So then Pharaoh says to them, what's up with this? Why aren't your people getting the work done? They say, well, you're not giving us supplies. They say, we don't care. And they, they beat them. So it begins a period of oppression. They, they oppress them even worse. The overseers and the foremen of people go out there and said, this is what Pharaoh says. I am not giving you straw. Go get straw yourself wherever you can. They try it. They can't do it. So the Israelite foreman, verse 15, went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten. But it is your own people who are at fault. But he said, you are slackers. You're slackers. Remember we talked about in the, in the beginning of, of, of this, this time in Exodus that one of the things, the reason the Pharaoh is, is being so hard on them is he has, in his mind, decided that they are going to try and usurp his kingdom or take his power. And so one of the things he's done very early on, we talked about the process for, for, uh, for how to deal with, 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 uh, with a minority group in, in, in history. The first thing he did was he dehumanized them, then he disenfranchised them, then he tried to destroy them. He continues dehumanization. He says, you're slackers. The reason you can't do it is because you're lazy. You deserve to be servants and you're slackers. Uh, so the Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble and when they were told you cannot reduce the daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron and stood who stood waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord, may Yahweh, uh, take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hands to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. That's how chapter 5 ends. Right? Chapter 4 ends by saying that they knelt low and worshipped. Chapter 5 ends by saying you haven't rescued your people at all. Whereas chapter 4 ends in worship of Yahweh, chapter 5 ends with an accusation towards Yahweh. 
And so we go, what happened between the, be- the later and the before? What happened? Because God did not cease to be God. He didn't cease to be God between the last verse of chapter 4 and the last verse of chapter 5. If he was Yahweh, if, if he was the Lord Yahweh, if he was, if he was God in chapter 4, then he is God at the end of chapter 5. But what happened? That's what we need to deal with, with, with this morning. What happened? And so I would just observe this just, just off the bat. One of the things I've said to you consistently about Exodus, uh, consistently about what we're doing here is that we will see that God does what God wants we will see God do what God wants. We have seen that God will do what he wants for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his own name. But what he wants will always be consistent with his character and with his promises. We have said, and I said to you, God is just as much God at the end of chapter 5 as he was at the end of chapter 4. Yet we read this and we go, why is this here? What is the point? Like if you were reading your devotions... Doing your devotions, you woke up and say, Lord God, I need an encouragement for this morning. Give it to me. If you opened your Bible and you flipped open, which is, by the way, a bad way to choose a passage to read. But let's say you flipped it open. You flipped it open and you opened it to Exodus chapter 5. What are you going to take from this? What do you take from the end of chapter 5 where it says, Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. I will make this point simply uh, to say this, is that one of the reasons we need to do regular and continual reading of Scripture is so that we understand that chapter 5 does not happen in isolation, as we've already said, from chapter 4. But not only does chapter 5 not happen in isolation from chapter, chapter 4, but it does not happen in isolation from the rest of the book of Exodus. And so, chapter 5 is certainly the end of the chapter. It is not the end of the book. And so, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Don't, don't skip the rest of our series on Exodus. God is going to set his children free. God is going to bring his children out of the land. God is going to give his people victory over Pharaoh. They're going to leave. Great stuff happens. Again, don't want to give you spoiler alerts, but there's miracles and there's seas and there's people walking on dry land. There's good stuff happening. Spoiler alert, chapter 5 is the end of the, or, or verse 23 is the end of chapter 5, but it is not the end of the book. God, in his goodness, has allowed their suffering that we and all who come after might understand a few very important things. Remember, this is the word of God written so that, as it says later in Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? And it's useful to us for instruction, reproof, correction, all these sorts of things. God has written his word. He's written what he writes in scripture. He has given it to us, not only so that that the people who received it might understand, but so that each successive generation might understand and see more clearly who God is. It's why we call scripture revelation. It is revelation. What is it revealing? It is revealing who exactly God is and what exactly 
God does and what he will do. And so we, we, this is written, chapter 5 appears in Scripture so that you might understand who God is. And so that you might also understand, understand what life is. In this case... We, chapter 5 is written to set up what is going to follow, and I've already given you the spoiler alert, but in this case, chapter 5 is also going to help us to understand something basic about life. And so if I said to you, spoiler alert, the Israelites, the children will be set free, I will give you another spoiler alert based, based on chapter 5 and pure logic. You, in this life, will suffer. No one wants to hear that. No one enjoys hearing that. No one gets excited about hearing that. That's not exactly the message that we throw together when we go, hey, combined service, get everybody together, celebrate the collective ministry of crosswinds. What do you want to do? Dave did not throw out right away suffering. Let's do it. The people love a good suffering message. But spoiler alert... You will suffer. Wednesday taught us that there will be collective national suffering and national mourning, a national feeling of helplessness, a national feeling of going, what are we going to do and what is the matter with this world? One of my worries about Christian, Christianity in America in general, is that we have skipped by this point. We have skipped right over suffering. We've skipped over the idea that suffering is endemic and sort of natural in the life in which we live. And so we skip over suffering so that when suffering happens in the general culture, our faith has not dealt with suffering. Our faith has not talked about suffering. Our study of scripture, our understanding of God has not dealt or talked about suffering so that when awful things happen in the culture, we don't know how to respond. We don't know what to say. So we put our heads down and we don't have an answer. And when the people are out there asking, where is God? When the people are out there replying like, like they did at the end of chapter 5, where, where they said, you haven't rescued your people at all, we don't have an answer. Because we have skipped over the suffering parts of the scripture to the resurrection parts of the scripture. And thank you, Jesus. Again, spoiler alert, we'll get there in a minute. Hey, there's this really great person He's God. His name's Jesus. He came. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. He fixes everything. It's a spoiler alert. It's where the message is going. But we skip right to that resurrection and ignore the suffering. And so then, when suffering happens in our culture, we have no response. We don't know what to say. And we don't know, is our faith, is, it, is this an argument against our faith? Is, is this something that's a destruction of our faith? Should people not believe because these things happen? We don't have an answer because we skip those parts. We have a happy, clappy, sappy version of what it means to follow God. And so we need to get back to what I just said and understand this. It is endemic to human life. You will, I will, we will suffer. We don't like to hear that. I would prefer not to say that. And yet, what kind of fool would I be to stand in front of you and argue anything else? Your faith 
cannot sustain the lie that suffering will not come. Your faith can't sustain that lie. And so I've watched in history uh, people try and give many, many, many different ways of saying this. But I've watched people who believe that suffering does not come to believers. I've watched people out there uh, ignore that suffering uh, 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 comes to believers. I, I've watched people say things like, follow Jesus, it'll be your best life now. Come to Jesus, he's going to give you everything you ever dreamed of. Come to Jesus, you'll feel better. Come to Jesus, happiness is assured. I've watched people preach these things and the reality is, is that human life cannot sustain this. Human existence cannot Deal with this. I can tell you that you're going to have your best life now, today, but what answer do I have when you're diagnosed with your worst bout of cancer tomorrow? I can tell you that you're going to experience your best life now, today, but what answer do I have when your child is hit by a car tomorrow? I can tell you that you're going to experience your best life and triumph today, but what answer do we have when our freedoms are taken? One day, what happens if Christianity, the following of Jesus, becomes illegal in this country? What if it happened? What if it could happen? What if they take it away? What if they persecute us? What if they kill us? What if we die? What have I said if I tell you that you'll have your best life now when suffering waits around the corner tomorrow? Can you skip that to the Hebrews passage, please, for me, Justin? So, let's, let's make sense of it for a minute together. You will suffer. That's why I think chapters like like, like Exodus 5 appear in the scripture. It's why we can hear with honesty Moses crying out, you haven't rescued your people at all. This is verse 8 of chapter 2 of, uh, of, he, of Hebrews. It says this. So, in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not see everything is subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering." I'm going to start in the backwards, the bottom part of that verse and say this. God thought it was appropriate to make the source of our salvation perfect. How? Through suffering. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith, our God, our King, our adopted brother through, uh, through, through Yahweh, right? He was made perfect through suffering. The basic, most basic question we should ask then, if our Lord and our God and our salvation and our only hope suffered, then why should we ever expect that we would not? So then, I'll go just quickly to the top of the passage. So, this passage is, is, is quoting uh, from, from the Old Testament. There's a quote from the Old Testament, and it's going back and talking about Adam. And so there's this, this debate, and we're not going to get deep into it, about whether verse 8 is talking about Jesus or it's talking about, about men. 
and women, humans. I think in reading it that it's actually talking about humans. And here's what I think it's saying. Humans were, were, were created by God and placed in the garden. It was subjected to Adam. He put Adam in charge. Said, Adam, Eve, take care of the garden. The animals will be subject to you. The garden will be subject to you. Cultivate, keep, take, take care of it. Be in control. God subjected everything to, to mankind. So he, he put mankind in a special place in the, um, in the universe uh, one of the most moving uh, uh, sentences I've ever heard, we're talking about how special humanity is in, in the scheme of God's salvation. He said, if you doubt that, consider this, that there's no redemption plan for angels. But there's a redemption plan for mankind. So, so in subjecting everything to mankind, he left nothing that's not subject. In other words, he put man in the garden, and he said, rule over it, name the animals, care for them, do this. It says, as it is, we do not see everything is subjected to him. No, because sin enters into the picture, right? Sin happens, then, then what has been subjected to him is no longer subject. Chaos is introduced in. Brokenness is introduced. Everything is introduced in. So we don't see everything as subject to man. In other words, you are in a situation where you cannot just cultivate your garden and keep your garden and everything will go well. You are subject to the whims of everything else. If we use the gardening analogy... If you went out and planted your, your garden, you plant your garden, but you're still subject to the weather. For instance, they're having this discussion right now of whether the, the citrus crops will ever come back in Florida. The citrus crops got a disease called, uh, 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 I believe the disease was called greening disease. The greening disease caused the, the, the fruit to, to grow, and as the fruit grew, it, it, it um. It would ripen too early, it wouldn't have flavor, and it wouldn't have nutrients. And so the crops in Florida were, were dying off. Then they were starting to come back. They thought, we're finally going to have crops. The crops are coming back. We're going to have a bumper year for Florida's citrus, Florida citrus. And then the hurricane hit and wiped out most of the crops. And so there's this discussion. Will Florida citrus ever come back? See, in the Garden of Eden, when everything was subject to Adam, he could plant the citrus and know that the citrus would grow, right? He would know because the, 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 the sin had not entered in, into the picture. The destruction, the brokenness had not entered the picture. When it does, we lose control. We lose. So the, the point here being we live in a world where things happen that we can't control. As yet, we do not see everything is subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time by God's grace, that he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered. He suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. I think the rational, rationale of why Exodus 5 exists is caught here in this passage. Suffering is going to happen. Because not everything at the moment is subject to our, to our control. If, um, 
If we go back and go, well, maybe that verse isn't talking about mankind. Maybe that verse is talking about Jesus. If you say, for in subjecting everything to Jesus, he has left nothing not subject to him. As it is, we do not see everything is subjected to him. The same interpretation, we get the same interpretation, which is this, is that there is sin and brokenness in this world. And sin and brokenness is always impinging and coming in. So suffering is here. But I want to tell you that what verse 10 suggests is this, is that Jesus has overcome suffering. He has overcome it by going through it. But you need to understand this. Just as chapter 5 was the end of the chapter, not the end of the book. We are at mid-chapter in history awaiting the end of the book as well. And what I talked to my kids about this week, I talked to them about this, I said, hey, because you've got to talk about stuff like this now. If a shooter were ever to come into your school, here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to, as soon as you can, get out of the building and run. Uh, school shooters are, are, are usually... Uh, 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 it's, it's a crime of opportunity. They're going to shoot what they see. They're going to do, they're not going to chase. I want you to get up. And then I want you to meet me at church. I will meet you there. Go there every place. Church is the mean place. And so we were having hard conversations about awful junk this week, to be honest. But in the midst of that, I said, and then I want you to remember this. Is that things look terrible right now. Things look awful right now. Things look bad right now. And I was talking to my two boys, I said, but you're athletes, right? And so you need to understand this, that the game is over, we're in garbage time. And so if you don't do athletes, I'll explain, athletics, I'll explain. In athletics, a lot of times the game ends long before it's over. So uh, in, in high school football, if you're up by 35 points in the third quarter, you get a running clock. The clock runs the whole time because you're not going to come back, you're going to lose Game's going to be over. In high school basketball, I think it's also 35 points in, in one of the quarters. The clock starts to run. Why? Because the other team has so thoroughly defeated one team that they're just going to run the clock and get it, get it over with, right? And when that happens, when you go into garbage time, every team sort of clears their bench. They put in everybody, and, and they just wait for the clock to run out. Why? Because the game's over, but the clock hasn't expired. History... History hinges on one of these moments. History hinges on the cross of Jesus Christ, who was pleased, who was pleased to bring many sons to glory through suffering. He suffered in history. How did he suffer? He suffered on a cross. When he went to the cross, he obtained victory for us over sin and death. When he was resurrected from the dead, he made a way for us to go and be with him. He is one in history. And yet we don't currently see everything as subject to him because we are waiting out the waning moments. The climb is ticking off the clock, but there is coming a time when the, the final, the, in, in athletics, the final horn sounds. And when the horn sounds, if it's a championship game, that's when everybody rushes the court and celebrates. What I'm telling you is that Jesus won the victory at the cross. He resurrected from the dead, established that he had won for his, forever, and we are waiting on the final horn to sound. We don't see it as subject to him, but we know this to be 
be true. And there's coming a time when the final horn will sound, right? Scripture says this, the, the trumpet will sound and Jesus Christ will come and the dead in Christ will meet him in the air to bring him down to earth so that we might celebrate with our king the great victory because he has won. We are at the middle point of the book. But the last chapter is coming. Here's, here's what I want you to catch. It does not seem often very evangelistic, very uh, missional, whatever, to stand up and preach messages about suffering. Go, hey, everybody, come in. I'm going to talk about suffering again. It's going to be great, right? Doesn't, doesn't seem like it, but I want you to understand this. The choice in life is not between not suffering or suffering with Jesus. The choice in human life is between suffering with Jesus or suffering without Jesus. The choice in human life is this, and you will see this all throughout Scripture again and again and again, is that the people who follow Jesus, they do suffer in this life. They do suffer, but in their suffering, they do not even often bat an eye. Because Guys, you could reject this go, well, I don't want to follow any God who puts up with suffering. Well, then what you will be following is some sort of God or some sort of philosophy of your own making, but you will still suffer. The only difference is your suffering will, will be without meaning and without purpose and without comfort and without support. So he goes, so why... Dave, you might ask me, Dave, why do you follow Jesus? There's suffering, and if bad things are still going to happen, and stuff's still going to be messed up, and it's not going to be made. Why do you follow Jesus? Because I know we're in the middle of the book, and that there's coming a day, a final chapter, when the trump resounds, when the Lord comes in victory, when he's going to make all things new. We preached Revelation for how many months? What happens? Every tear will be dried. Every sorrow will be wiped away. Every hurt will be wiped out. Sin will be gone. And we will live in perfect, wonderful, amazing relationship with our Lord, our God, and our King. We will do whatever our heart desires. And every desire of our heart will be pleasing to the Lord God. Why do I follow Jesus? Because suffering's real. But my suffering is not without meaning. Why do I follow Jesus? Because suffering is real. But my suffering's not without purpose. Why do I follow Jesus? Because suffering's real for everybody. But my God, Jesus is going to rescue me, save me, obliterate and wipe out suffering one day and make all things new. And I'm going to spend eternity doing whatever my heart desires. And every one of my heart's desires will be pleasing glorifying and honoring to my Lord, my God, and my King. There's coming a day that is better than any of the other days that came before it. There's coming a moment that's better than any moment. You think of your finest moment, there's a finer moment still. There is coming a time and a moment when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. He'll descend. He'll walk on the planet. Things will be made new, and we'll see him face to face. And when we see him, Suffering will be no more. Yes, now we suffer, but it's the middle of the chapter. There's coming a day when the book will close and the king will come. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 18, says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed, revealed. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly, Awaiting, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? You will suffer. I will suffer. We will suffer. But let us not consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing with the glory that is coming, that is going to be revealed to us. Yes, now we suffer, but there will come a day. There will come a day when all things will be made new, when all things will be made right, and we'll see our Savior face to face. There's coming a day.